Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to bleep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. July. We are in July. We we did it. Um happy midsummer. Um not the movie because that would be creepy if we're just like hey happy midsummer. Uh no, but we are uh into July and this of course is the movie show with Joel and Ryan and I am Joel and I'm Ryan. And uh super happy to be back with you. Hope you all had a uh good independence day for all of those uh, for everyone who celebrates it um i'm talking to you international audience that's uh if that, if that's not something that you i'm i'm guessing our international listeners um probably well I, you know maybe they are maybe they love the show so much that they have a, a fourth of july celebration celebrating the americanism of joel and ryan because we are America's podcast. I like to think so. Yeah. Although, isn't there um, a thing called Podcast of the Americas somewhere else? Yeah, there? they're yeah we we are we are very much not uh, America's podcast. Um, We're unfortunately we are... titled. You know, I remember when uh, we was running the the like this is once we had the, Carrie had the art done and everything. <laughs> We're all like. Who we were here because we tried to name it something clever. We told this story a few different times in many different ways, but it it they all seemed like are we going to say that over and over and over again? Like is that going to be funny at, at the third time? <laughs> let alone like the thirtieth time, let alone the hundred ninety ninth time, which is where we are right now. Um, yep. And the answer was always I don't think so. Like I say, it's like. It's, <laughs> probably keep this simple you know keep it sort of socialist like just say what the thing is right yeah um so that's where we settled and joel was a good sport and went along with me on that because i would have been i might have been annoyed with anything else it's hard to say um but there was this guy and, and it, I, he's not listening so i guess i'm not worried about this story if it reflects badly on him this is a good person who was trying <laughs> to help us but he was all like blah 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 you know you gotta have your own brand and everything and i've named my company and i he and this is the funny thing about the story is i he's like whatever integron or whatever this company called some <laughs> some non-word you know yeah. businessy thing and you know that you can copyright and you can say hey, that's mine you can't have that basically it's you see movies yeah. do this all the time they make up words to put in the subtitles so that they can own the thing and and of course i he's like and i've never looked back and no one's ever forgotten and of course i'm sitting here now i've completely forgot what it was i have no mm-hmm. idea 
Um, and I'm just like, I don't know, man. We couldn't really think of anything like that. And, and you know, but thanks. Uh, yeah. I believe, uh, I mean, my favorite was still, uh, you know, when I said, but it's like, oh, Joel and Ryan talking about movies whilst seated upon a couch. It was like, I actually, I, I pushed for having whilst. I like whilst. <laughs> we, and of course, whilst seated upon a couch, I'm on it. I'm still on the couch. You're, you yeah, haven't been, we, you haven't seen the couch for, well, I guess we watched Blade Runner last summer. So that was the last yeah. time you were over here on the couch. God, um, it's been that long. Oof. Yeah, so it, that would well, not have been accurate in the post-COVID era. <laughs> right. But, and we do sort of strive for accuracy. We do sort of let ourselves off the hook when we go astray, though. So you all know that. <laughs> yeah. we, today today you can hear ourselves... us mispronounce a bunch of French stuff. That's going to be really <laughs> super fun. Yeah, we could do, maybe we should do the whole show with, uh, with uh, borderline uh, offensive accents. <laughs> um oh. <laughs> uh yeah we are gonna be <laughs> i don't do it very about... good i mean i try to but people always give me a weird look when i do my french accent i can still yeah. do a really really spectacularly good offensive stereotypical italian accent though sure sure yeah uh i'm i my um i do a french canadian uh <laughs> french canadian accent and uh and it's really really um not cool here's my favorite uh, <laughs> french canadian story from the movies at least this time and uh that to really do it right you have to do it in a fake australian accent because it's, <laughs> it's robert uh, i can't remember his name robert taylor maybe that uh he plays that detective in the rockies uh, near the indian reservation on cable i can't remember his name he's a really good actor and he was in a mountain climbing movie that Martin Campbell directed called Vertical Limit. And uh, Isabella Skrupko's in it, who I think is Swedish in real life, but basically is like a woman of Europe and can speak, you know, 10 languages and whatever. But in the film, she's French-Canadian. And Taylor is explaining that to Chris O'Donnell's character, who's our hero of the story, back when, if you remember that far back, when Chris O'Donnell was starring in movies. Um oh, yeah. And he's good in vertical limit, but Taylor's like, he's like, he's like, hey, if, uh, she's been here for how many, many years, you know, and she's French Canadian. And some days she's Canadian, she's perfectly pleasant, but today she's clearly French. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I just thought that I'm, was really clever I'm, writing for some reason, because. She's. I spent a good amount of time in Canada and there's something there's it's not that's obviously a rotten thing to say, but it's funny because there's a certain kernel of, yeah, I know what you're talking about when mm -hmm. you say that, you know, um, I, I was doing a show uh, and I had to play a French voyageur uh -huh. and um <laughs> just being this doing the and it was really over the top silly and, and it was one of the first shows that um, that Ben, my son, came to see me in. Uh, I keep and he came to a rehearsal, mm. and, <clears throat> and he he was very young and he did not know what was going on and he did not know why his dad wouldn't talk back wouldn't say hi to him when he would say hi to his dad and then it was like why and then he was like oh we are French voyagers we will help guide you through Minnesota and 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 there and then he's like he just turned and I just hear him go he goes 
why is dad talking like that? <laughs> what? What is he saying? So that makes me, that's what I always think of when it's I for the of. art kiddo. That's why. Yeah. That's why yeah. we make clowns of ourselves. <laughs> like give repeatedly. Up. So, so that is why we are going to talk about Luc Besson. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that's director, not why, uh, but that'll no, be I'm, a good as good a transition as as <laughs> good a transition as there. Um, so yeah, so we, uh, yeah, the films of uh, Luc Besson. Uh, I'm assuming I'm gonna put the accent on the second on the bell. I'm not going to, uh, but uh, but that's cool. Yeah, please do that you, as best we can. I sat and watched um, the you know the YouTube video where the French person actually pronounces Anne Perlou's name. Mm-hmm. I just which I just said it wrong. I watched it like six times. Going, I got at some point this will stick, and it just it. It, I haven't said it enough, and I just uh, didn't hear it enough to really know how to say it. And I've thought even harder in all the movies I've seen her in. I've just I've read it in print many, many times, brutally with brutal English, like British type phoneticism. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So just, just nothing the Brits like more than just phonetically over pronouncing every French thing. They do it with glee. They travel to Versailles. You know what I mean? Like they just, I think they love it. They look at how it's written and they say it in English. And I think they really like the fact that they know deep down that they're butchering how these words are supposed to sound. And I guess. Okay. Here's. Okay. So I guess between the long conflict between the countries, I'm on the British side. Apparently (laughs) we'll talk a little bit more about that later. This might be a complete disaster, but let's see. Here we go. Scarlett Johansson begins Taiwan shoot for Luke Besson's Lucy causes media circus. Luke Besson's. Oh, that's not right. Well, that's uh, how about AI anyway. That's not a person. Yeah. So how, about, how about we go this way? Luke Besson. Luke Besson. Luke Besson. Luke Besson. That's probably, I mean, it's... Luke Besson. It, it is, it, we never seem to get him exactly right. This show's really Luke unfortunately going to be full of that. I like this AI. This AI is good. Luke Besson. Luke Besson. That's how I say it. Mm-hmm. Because that's um, how Americans everywhere basically say it. So, sorry, Luke. The show. Be... The show is for you, man. And you know what? It's kind of weird because I don't. Uh, I don't. It's if you can't discount Luke's contribution to mod, modern films, he's. The number one screenwriter in my movie collection by a big chunk. He's, I mean, he, to be fair, he really gets a lot of story credits, which is, uh, this is, we're going to do this. And then he, he is a producer and a writer and a director. And he doesn't, you know, he, he directs the rare film every few years, like every other major director these days. But he mm-hmm. does through Europacorp, pawn off different projects, different French filmmakers, and he makes lots of films in the English language that take place in France. Um, and so he's got all these story credits, and they just pile up. Like, it's, he's just been part of a ton of movies. And I, the joke yesterday, when I th- was attempting to tell Joel what show we were going to do, I guess it was Wednesday or what, something like that, and mm-hmm. I accidentally wrote to our little... Uh, support group on the line so i i just 
turned it into a hype post. <laughs> just did my <laughs> best to like, oh, I did this on purpose. They were, I, I, I was able to, you know, uh, assuming a lot of you support people listen to the show, so now you know the truth. Um, but I made the joke, uh, the films of Luke Besson, part one, of one. Uh, of one. <laughs> which got... <laughs> Which which got a chuckle out of Rob, who was the only one I thought who would really understand that. We'll get into why it's part one, because it really is only part one, and why it's part one of one, and why there really isn't going to be a part two yeah. for this particular cat. I'll try and rattle off a bunch of my favorite later period movies of him, but he um he's a guy who showed... In these first handful, six or seven, however many of them there are, real, uh, real art, artistic and evolution of scope and style, and it just each movie got bigger and kind of more amazing for a while, and then, then, and then he bit off more than he could chew to some degree with the final film on this list. We talked about it. It's a countdown, but we're going to do it in chronological order. That's the way to experience yep. a, a, a proper filmography, I think. Um, which it's still a really good movie, but then it then it then he just been reaching around in the dark basically ever since, doing essentially the same movies over and over and over again, well, with diminishing returns, which is what happens right. when that when that next big idea doesn't come or won't be supported. You know, it, it happens to everybody. It happened to Coppola. It happened, you know, where you just suddenly like, well, I don't know, what's next? And then you do that thing because you take the work because you're just happy to still be around at some point. Yep. That's a sad way to start the show, but. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, hold on. Luc Besson. There you go. Luc Besson. Well, why didn't we Luc get that guy to Besson. come on the show? He would have yeah, that, that was that was a good one. Awesome. All, right. All right, so here we go. We're gonna do here we go. We're gonna do a countdown of some of the films, part one of one of the films of Luc Besson. Luc Besson. There's one simple. Joel, what's up? You ruined the countdown thing. What are you I doing? did. Uh, autoplay got me. Uh, yeah, YouTube's that autoplay. damned autoplay. Yeah, I don't. I it's like some... no matter how many places I shut off autoplay, which is every place that I can, mm -hmm. it always gets you. Yeah, I just didn't turn off the Luc Besson uh, mm -hmm. uh, video fast enough, um, and so sorry about that. Um, but no, we did get a nice the beginning of an ad. Uh, talking about how simple something is. Ah, uh, um, not you know, podcasting, yeah. brother, Mister Ad Person, who interrupted yeah. the countdown. <laughs> You're wrong about that. It is not simple. Um. All right. So, Luke Besson. Um. He. Uh. Yeah. I mean, this is also you know these. This is a guy who writes. Um. Most everything. Okay. Man, probably can hear um all this stuff going on in the background too. No biggie. 
Um, but Luc Besson is, uh, you know, uh, as we've clearly said, he is French. He's a writer, director. Um, uh, these these films that we're going to be talking about today are, um, you know, that he is an auteur. He is. Um, I think that's someone good. Who... I think it's a good word to use for him. And and he's he's. His early stuff is the weirdest uh, touristic stuff that that he did, and and but there's always a bit, and this is why I really like him, and this is why his simple ideas, will have been adapted again and again and again, and his French films have been remade, and it's because they are because there's a kernel of an idea there that's great. That it's their quick, simple, pitch meeting like concepts, and. Mm-hmm. And, and Hollywood loves that, but what they never seem to get, and it is that it's the what's great about his stuff, and it's also what brings it down. Tonally, they're challenging, but what's really great about them is they're just full to the brim of just what feels like spont- spontaneous insanity, mm-hmm. and that is. That's something that you just don't feel a lot when you're, especially the bigger the movies get. But even in the early days, it's like, oh, this stuff's just happening. Like this weird stuff just is happening and it pulls you along for the ride in a really, really great way. And it makes things feel unexpected and it makes things feel dangerous. And I mean, I just, that's a neat feeling. That's, you know, I went back and watched all these. I don't normally do that, but this first handful of these films I haven't seen in a long, long time. Um, and I loved it. That's what I loved about each and every one of them was, man, these are bonkers. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. really weird in a really great way. And I, and yet it's filmmaking isn't a spontaneous thing, you know, it just isn't, you know, even documentary filmmaking, which is trying to capture something real, usually it still has this very you know what that you're there they're shooting what they expect to happen and it usually happens and then they edit it in a way that fits whatever narrative they're trying to tell and when you write mm-hmm. a script or even if you don't write a script and you just sort of outline the thing like with this first move crazy movie um it it to make it feel like that wow that just happened for it to feel that way is a unique talent and to repeatedly to fill up tons of movies to fill up 200 million or i guess we don't get that far in this this thing but 100 million dollar movies from the 90s you know huge films and to have them have that sort of weird quirky randomness to them is is really really delightful so that's just to start off on a good note that's yeah yeah that's the thing that this guy does that in a way a lot of some other filmmakers that do it, but he just does it in a way that it feels so natural and, you know, and there's nothing weird or strange that's happened that he sort of doesn't embrace. And that make, that means that not a minute of these films, even the worst of them is ever boring for a second. I think that that's absolutely um, I think that's absolutely correct. The thing that I when I was thinking about um, uh, I, I don't know these early these these early films, but, um, you know, starting um, with his movies in the 90s, there's there he always 
keeps you as the viewer keeps his audience off kilter um you know you're he doesn't very rarely does he let you sort of uh get really comfortable right there's always yeah you're you're always watching you know you're watching something and, and, and like it's one of those things where just when you think you know like okay all right what and you know you're like there's always something that just makes you like a uh huh and then you're like and then you're back in like you're it because it in, it's like when you're caught off guard like that it activates different parts of your brain and you're you're looking at thing you know like you're you're just like hyper watching everything going wait what and you know so and so even in his uh a couple of these films which were big box office and you know big big studio films um they all yeah he i mean they, they always do keep you a little off uh off kilter um which is which is cool which is good i mean that's that's clearly i mean that's that's so you can make movies that are just like sit back and enjoy and just let the movie wash all over you and then there are other one other directors who are like no i'm going to try to make you sit sit forward in your seat a bit and i think and, it's more uh, than like an agenda i think <clears throat> you just can't do it any other way i think when you watch right, yeah yeah no yeah i mean he isn't like going like okay in... now what am i going to do here that is going to make no it's just that's but i because I, I think if you felt that's just an way. agenda of being poked at and whipped around like you start even if it's fun you would start to resent it after a while right no and i really yeah, do yeah, think absolutely. that because it comes from a very natural place with him as a storyteller mm -hmm. certainly as a director um Excellent point. I mean, yeah, that's an excellent point. You kind of can't this help yeah, but just a... sort of be whisked away by it, which I, I watched yeah. several of these in a row. So if I was going to get sick of that, you know, which I, there's plenty of moments that make you groan, but never mm -hmm. did I go, geez, well, maybe in one moment in one movie. So we should start the list. Maybe did I say, dude. Um, yeah. Let's, you know, let's, um, let's not do all this stuff the... at this point. I love. I don't know what you're planning on using for the shingle uh, for this episode, but I do really enjoy the poster for this first film, uh, which is the last battle, and uh, um, I, I just love it because it's like it is. Um, it's a dude clearly in like post-apocalyptic gear and everything, but he's just sitting in a chair, feet up on a desk, uh, <laughs> while holding a spear. And it's, uh, I, I just, yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, yeah, this is, um, last is, battle. It's, it, it yeah. only has two spoken words in it, the whole film and spoiler alert, the word is the same word twice and it's bonjour. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, here, here's the, here's the little yeah, synopsis that are really yeah. going to be helpful for these in the post-apocalyptic future. Only a few humans are left. No one is able to speak. And the film contains no dialogue and, commu and characters communicate non-verbally. A determined loner befriends a reclusive older man and these two battle against vicious thugs for food, shelter, and life itself. Um, well, that was a good synopsis. I don't like that the parenthetical was in there. Of course, I just said almost that exact same thing. I yeah, like, I, I could have. I yeah, never liked when they... No, that's not your fault. That's the synopsis did that. Um, but I don't like when the when the synopsur <laughs> starts <laughs> starts going. Synops and then this is what I think, and what, you know, I'm like, nobody cares what you think, man. Yeah. It's just what is it? 
That's what we want to know. <laughs> Otherwise, that's Synopsis. a good one. It, it is a post-apocalyptic future. At some point in humanity's history, we have lost mm-hmm. the ability to, to talk. The whole world has gone mute. So the entire film is like this. It's hard to explain. It's like it is a cross between... Um, well, there's a little bit of like I've heard David Lynch a little bit because it's because it's weird and it's black and white, but I really don't think it's very Lynchian. Mm-hmm. Actually, it it's it's more it's like a cross between Monty Python and and John Carpenter is what I would say. It is. Oh, okay. Um, because it's just super goofy constantly. It starts with this long pan across this beaten, weathered, uh, horrific, evocative, like, office scape that's been destroyed by the apocalypse. And it comes to rest on a guy behind a desk humping a blow-up sex doll. That's the first thing you see in the movie. And this is, and of course, this isn't, it's, it doesn't have a relationship with a sex doll or anything. This is a part of this dude's routine. Everything in this movie, no matter how weird it is, is just by rote in a weird way. And the film calls this guy the man. We'll call him the collector because that's what he is for the early in the film. Is he kind of goes out on these little adventures to find these things. And it's dangerous dangerous world mm-hmm. out there there's a tribe living just out of town in the desert. He lives in sort of a big high-rise um, which he's fortified sort of weekly, but he basically keeps himself in a place where nobody would really want to go to the effort to go is, is more the, his strategy. Um, I don't know the actor who plays him, but he's pretty good in it. The uh, here, here, this will be the second name we butcher of the day. Woo! Pierre Jolivet. A really decent performance guy. I don't believe I've seen in much else. Uh, Several of the character actors from this film go all the way through these, which is really, really fun to see. uh, I think it's always fun to see a Mm -hmm. a rep company, basically, play a bunch of... Sprinkled through a bunch of different movies throughout the years into different roles that utilize them in different ways. I think that's really fun. It's... You know, Luke Besson's a significant filmmaker, and this is his debut film. It was a festival film. It was beloved by many. It was despised by a lot. The humor yeah. and the sort of grossness of it. The fact that it's all these guys and that women... Oh, there's only two women in the whole movie, and they're both basically slaves that we barely yeah. come across. The Luke's, captain's concubine. Luke's made some... Name he's invented some really amazing female characters but but left to his own devices he tells fairly manly stories where where the women are treated in a really sort of antiquated and french way and we'll get to what that is a couple movies from now um Mm -hmm. because there's not much of that here but there's that little hint that they're they're not important they're like a prize he spends the whole movie pining after this woman that because there are not a many of them around. That much is clear. They're a rare item in this world. Um, you know, that he hangs out for this time in this lab with this doctor who nurses him back to health, who lives in this very clever, mechanical, mechanically defended fortress that's really goofy and fun. I won't spoil all the little surprises of that, because you should, after talking about this, you should want to see Last Battle. It is, it's a bonkers movie. 
it's very adult, which I believe mm-hmm. every one of these is. So these are these aren't family movies, not a one of them. <laughs> um just so you know, I believe they're all hard <laughs> R-rated films. I think every yeah. single one of them are. Uh so and that's actually cool too, because you kind of forget sometimes that's not the history of movies isn't told with those anymore. You know, this, the seventies a little bit, but by 1983, when last battle came out, you were, it was post star Wars and, and it was, it was all PG. And then the beloved for the studios anyway, PG 13 came along and, and that's, that's where our, at least Joel and I growing up, our movies, our generation, lives kind of right in there and the the Mm -hmm. r movies they're there but they're not you know they rarely do they much more rarely sometimes they do but rarely do they kind of penetrate in because you still have terminator and you still got the big guns movies of the 80s and 90s those certainly made an impression this doesn't have any guns mostly bows and arrows and little slingshots and stuff it does sort of have a bit of a mad max feel to it but really, just gonna, in the wardrobe. Ask. Well, just yeah, in the wardrobe say, department. I mean, I... If you come into this thinking you're going to see like a Mad Max like thing, you 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 aren't. It's it really is like a French Buster Keaton in a in like really what what Monty Python would consider the, an end of the world scenario. It's goofy. Wow. It's comic. It has moments of glory. We find out it takes a long time to get there, but we find out that he's collecting all this stuff and this, and he's working on this old, uh, airplane. It's like a, it fits him to fly him, but it's like a flying model airplane. It's not like an airplane. It's like a, mm-hmm. it's like a glider with a little tiny, uh, lawnmower engine in it, basically that he's hoping will sure. take him someplace different. And he steals this car battery from this tribe and they chase him all the way back and he puts it in. And then there's this, amazing sequence for a film of this type where he escapes in this plane. That was the last piece he needed and flies over uh, this wasteland. And it's, it's really glorious and interesting. And it's, it's one of the truly haunting moments in the film too. There's a moment in the film where it starts for some reason, raining fish. And the guy, our hero is just ecstatic about that. He keeps trying to pick up the fish and he, because it's food coming out of the sky essentially, which is a, (laughs) You know, so no, there's no question of why is, are the, I mean, maybe for a moment, why are these fish falling out of the sky? But after that, it's like, God, how do I, I have to get as many of these cannon and what do I do with them? I know they're food, but what do I, how do I, you know, I don't know how to, how to make them. And it, and he never really does figure it out. He keeps these piles of rotten fish around, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's not until he meets up with the doctor later that they fries the fish. But I feel like talking about these plot points out of context isn't super helpful. What's amazing about this movie is that it, it it's the, it is, and I forgive me, Rob, if I'm doing it wrong, but it is really like the, the Buster Keaton esque gags and sequences that it's, it's broad physical comedy in right. his first feature film, Jean Renault, the great Jean Renault plays, uh, the, uh, the, the aforementioned, one of the aforementioned, the key alpha thug, if you will, is a loner. His, the, t- his character name is, Le Brute. Yeah, Le Brute. <laughs> and 
he wants to get into the hospital and he wants to get he wants to get this guy and and all of the the man the man the collector and the brutes um interactions are are the hero of the story gets just the crap kicked out of him and is just barely able to escape and Renault's great because he's 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 got a nice little strange streak in him but he's he's uh he's always been a fantastic sort of focused and single-minded actor. And I, I normally I would say that because he can do real, real emotional complexity, but what I love about him is that he just, just comes in, takes stage and kapow. And even in his leading man roles, he basically does that. Yeah. He, he, he just, he's just a, he's just a really amazing and he's pretty amazing in this. And he's, he's the good luck charm of the first all but the last two of these films. Um, yeah. His physical presence is weird. His kind of angular bird-like face and his, he's just a fantastic guy to look at and to watch perform. I love Jean Reno, so this will be the great, yeah, great place to talk about him doing a, basically every kind of thing he's done throughout his career in these little types of films. And and he's also um, secretly very funny. He's also, I mean, not secretly, but like he also like, he knows how to use um, his presence uh, also to do some very funny stuff. Yeah. Um, so he's yeah, I like him a lot. Yeah, uh, even in this, he's fairly funny, but you know, but he's dangerous. He's gonna kill this guy mm-hmm. if he gets the chance to do it, and so. You got a basic, you got a villain, you've got these other outlandish tribes people that we don't deal with a whole lot, but we do see their little mini adventures. Um, We've got this strange doctor who's clearly smarter than everybody else, who has a woman locked up that they, that he allows our hero to feed, but only if he does so blindfolded. It's weird, and and you know, like I say, that flying sequence is really wonderful, and and uh, like it's just you're so grounded in the muck, and then when suddenly you're soaring over it all, it's this amazing feeling. It, it was really well done. Black and white photography is outstanding. This composition is amazing. Uh, the score by Eric Serra. Every single one of these films is scored by Eric Serra. Um, who's a who's most primarily electronic film score guy, especially in the eighties, as you would imagine eighties and early nineties. Um, but yeah. he's a really outstanding composer that has done several films, several, you know, English films. He's done a couple of the big Luke Besson films that were like Joel said, were big hits here, but he didn't really translate to non-French stuff. His style, his biggest profile thing that he worked on was he was, Martin Campbell, we talked about already in the show, hired him to do the score for uh, Goldeneye when, mm-hmm. when they were rebooting. They were, didn't use that term back then, but when they were rebooting the Bond franchise. And it, the music for Goldeneye is fantastic, but it's been re- a lot of it, the action stuff, has been replaced with... They brought in the great David Arnold, another one of my f- absolute favorite composers, for film to beef it up and 
get the brass going and get the guitars going and get the usual Bond sounding stuff because there just wasn't any of that in the film and that right. made the producers sad, you know. The <laughs> the he the quiet atmospheric the sneaking around stuff, Eric's stuff is all in that movie but the big the big theme and stuff is all mm-hmm. that's all Arnold doing his John Barry impression so that the movie could have something that felt familiar yeah. in the big in the big sequences so that's sort of sad part of eric but he's never better than he is in these movies well i'll keep talking about him as we go through him because because it's 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 i mean I, I don't know how many movies it is five movies in a row luke besson eric sarah john renault and they're like there there really are like the the um I don't know. The only terms I'm thinking of in terms of threes are all super lame. They are yeah. the French trident of the early yeah. gamon. Uh, the French triumvirate. Yeah, triumvirate would have been pretty good. Although that's not necessarily three. It just sounds like it. Cause of... yeah. Hey, Last Battle is bonkers. It's really, really fun in that way. It is a weird festival movie, but if you consider yourself like an art house fan and it slipped by you which i could understand i have these first films all on uh they were all released thankfully in england um i can't remember the name of the company who put them out but it's all the same company you see the same logo at the beginning of each of the discs and uh they're but they're all region locked so you can't really watch them in america unless you've got a hack in your machine to do so um but it's great because they're all English-friendly versions of the films. You know, you can buy all of Luc Besson's films because he's the one of the most celebrated French filmmakers in the modern era. He's put upon, I think, because the great film French filmmakers of the classic era are the ones that all the French critics that he grew up with adored, and he wasn't them, so he must have sucked. And they were really, really hard on him with almost each and every one of these. And uh, this one, though, was such a trifle and such a small little goofy thing that they were kind of nice about it. It was interesting. And the American critics liked it more, which they typically did throughout this era. But the American critics didn't really get it. They just liked it despite not really getting it. Like when you read what they say about his early works, you read them just sort of missing the point and, and... predicting a future for him that just absolutely was never going to come right Uh, and and a lot of them do it and they do it in the same way i'm not ripping on them i'm just saying they like the film but it'll make an artist who reads reviews and who's sensitive you know start to hate critics when the ones who like (laughs) you really don't get you and the ones who don't like you are you know absolutely stuck and rooted in the past and and are responding to films in a in that kind of way he says that he says they're interested in you know themselves and their egos and their and the past works and the history and none of which any of my films are really concerned with so the person who i care is the person who buys the ticket sits down in the theater watches the movie what's their reaction when they come out of the theater that's to me that's that person just you know that person at least wanted to like the film I think that's something I've said a few times. At least let's at least start with that. Yeah. But I check out Last Battle. It's really fantastic. It, it's it's really 
fantastic, weird movie, even if it, it does have a few objectionable things in it, I think every one of these has something where you go, whoa, no. Yeah. But that's also <laughs> kind of part of the deal. Yeah. So, because um, it's, yeah, it does bum me out to spoil it. It, you know, he, he, he develops at least a something of a modicum of a cinematic relationship with this woman that he's helping treat and, and experiment on in the, in this lab that this doc has, has cooked up. And when that all goes south in the climax and everything, he's, he's to me, to me in a cinematic sense, he seems, he stumbles across an, another woman being held in a similar, even worse situation. And they both seem really happy to see each other. And I always thought, well, then that uh, then that other person wasn't really much of a character at all. I mean, you, you just, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. It, yeah. That, so the ending of it sort of bums me out. But that's, it's par for the chorus. You, you know, got to leave, uh, with, with Luke and really with films of this type, you have to take a step out of the safe space and you really just have to do that. And... And you don't have to accept everything that you see. I certainly don't. But you do kind of have to be willing to engage with it and not say, no, that's not acceptable. Because right. almost every one of these films has something completely unacceptable in it. Some of them are really based on a really unacceptable idea. In fact, the best ones tend to be. Right. I don't know. What's next, Joel? Uh, it is 1985. So, oh, by the way, the production company, is it Le Film de Loup? Uh, yeah, that production company, and more, more importantly, because the story is uh, the French film distributor, Gamo. Sure. Who's oh, a, yeah, Gamo. Who were top of the world, and, and this guy became their champion until he started his own Gamo, and then everything went to <laughs> hell. His career, Gamo Studios, like it all kind of fell apart when they split the team up, which... Hey, it happens. It happened to Van Halen. You know, it happens throughout the years. You, <laughs> you, you get your own little cozy place. You get your own little way of doing things, and suddenly you're not interested in a single other person's way of doing things. And it happened with George Lucas, clearly. Although George did try and bring in people he trusted to do his films and stuff, but they all said no, and he was basically left surrounded by sycophants who were like, yeah, it's great when Yoda says that. Oh, yeah. No, more things should fart on Bar Jar Jar. That's really mm-hmm. funny. I mean, yeah, in no way is Jar Jar's voice offensive. That's great. You should continue with that going down that road. I don't mind Jar Jar so much, but of course, that's easy for me to say. But those, those, tra- those Asian esque trade federation guys, oh, man. Yeah, the trade Woo! federation. Yeah, yeah. Holy smokes. That... <laughs> Um, all right. Uh, let's move on to 1985's Subway. Um, so, uh, with Christopher Lambert, Isabella Johnny, a seductive fable is what this one is called. Uh, a seductive uh, uh, yeah. fable. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'll let you finish. Uh, Try. Improv- I can't wait to see what the synopsis for this says. I really can't. On improvising a burglary at a shady tycoon's home, Fred takes refuge in the hip and surreal universe of the Paris Metro and encounters its assorted denizens, <laughs> the tycoon's henchman and his disenchanted young wife. Um, 
the first time I watched Subway, it was wasn't that long ago because again, that wasn't necessarily an easy movie where you just walked down to the store and picked it up. Sure. Um, it, I just I didn't think I liked it because I didn't know what happened basically when it was over, and you know, parts of that is. Uh, Last Battle has no words in it, so the fact that it's a French movie matters really very little. It matters, but it doesn't. Right. It doesn't matter in the following of it. People who really just like to follow the movie and don't like it when they can't follow the movie should never watch Subway because <laughs> even the Wikipedia page. I swear to God, I just because I went to Wikipedia, I'm like, all right, what. I have to tell people what happened, and I, I still don't know. It's the second time I watched it. I liked it a lot better this time, but I still am not sure what's really going on here. And I read it, and it really, the first paragraphs, like, it gives you the setup, basically the first scene, this robbery. And then after that, it's just like, and then a bunch of stuff happens. I've never seen that on Wikipedia where it's just like, <laughs> dude, we give up. And we, then... do not, we do not know what happened here. <laughs> And then chaos ensues. <laughs> I mean, this happened and that happened and this happened, but it really, it just doesn't have like a plot that you can glom onto. It just keeps slipping mm -hmm. through your fingers. So my advice to you when you watch Subway and you, sh Subways, I just loved Subway this time and I didn't really like it much the first time. It's just, it just kick back. It's like a crazy music video. You really... It's just the images and the thing and the characters and the it, it's it's crazy what it is, what it excels at and what even I couldn't deny the first time through is that it creates this crazy urban mid eighties fantasy world beneath Paris, <laughs> where any crazy thing imaginable can happen. Um, the poster. It, is a, incredible. It's it's a picture of uh, Christopher Lambert who stars in this film. Um, his, his it's among his best ever performances. Of course, this is right in his heyday. He'd just done Grey mm -hmm. Stoke. He was about to do Highlander. If you consider those films <laughs> big achievements, this is when Chris was it, it, you know a star basically in, in Hollywood, just even if to a minor degree. Uh, Subway is very French. Everybody speaks in French. You got to read the subtitles to keep up with it because I don't think you'll even be able to follow people's attitudes. Chris Lambert is weird, man. He's just strange and it's hard to tell what's going on with him. And Isabella Johnny, whoa, she's, she's just doesn't share anything with you. <laughs> so if she's not speaking her mind, you have no idea what she's feeling. That's part of the, the French awesomeness of it and the mystery surrounding her. And Elizabeth, who I've known is great forever. And I, and she's been in much better movies and much better in much better movies. Nevertheless, her presence in this is, she's like this, it's just hard to explain. She just has this seriousness and this sort of in the moment kind of integrity. Well, it's like I say, not being, not letting you in at all. She just doesn't, not interested. It's not that she doesn't, it's not that she's standoffish per se. It's that she's not interested in you knowing what's going on with her. She doesn't care. Yeah. And yeah. like anything in nature or like anything among the sexes or like just anything in our world, when somebody acts like that, you just like, 
You, we're drawn to that in some weird, wild way that the movies really often don't understand. They just kind of don't get it. They want that. They want to always be in that emotional moment. And, uh, you know, despite the purple lipstick and the spiky hair and the giant shoulder pads and all the 1985 stuff, uh, this great French performer comes through all that in this amazing way. Jean Renault also featured in this film, which he's, he's the other guy we have to mention. He's the drummer for this band that, yeah. that, that are that Fred is trying to start. It's really it's just, <laughs> yeah. He just has With, these weird non sequitur cameos yeah. throughout the film, most of which are drum related and they're crazy and they're really, really fun. And you really think like he's going to turn out to be an assassin or something like he, he keeps you on your toes. It's he's not, all he is is a guy who's waiting to drum on the right stuff. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's, um, that's, that's fun. There's two songs featured in it, both of which I think are completely awesome. Um, I can't remember what the first one's called, but it's the awesomest one. And then the big final dance number of the movie basically is uh, Guns Don't right. Kill People, People Kill People. I don't know where Guns they... and People. Guns, yeah, and, guns people, and People, yeah. Uh, it's Only Mystery. It's Only and... Mystery. That's such a yeah. good song. And, uh, well, a lucky guy. That's just from... From album Pirates by Ricky Lee Jones. Those oh, are the yeah. three tracks. Ricky Lee Jones. Oh, man, I forgot how awesome Ricky Lee Jones is, too. She's so great. Um, um, so this also so again, this is another movie where <clears throat> pardon me. Um there's only a couple characters uh that actually have names. Yeah. You know, this is and you know, so we have Fred and, and Helena, and but then it's like the florist, the 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 chef, the you know, we do have Batman, Robin, you know, Batman and Robin. Uh, but yeah, the drummer, the bassist, who is Eric Sarah, the singer, the, the saxophonist, the guitarist. So it's like that they all just there's no, you know, no one is of name. You are just, you know, you are this a functionary of. Of yeah. whatever this so the other main is, character or... in the movie is the detective who basically yeah. is 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 uh I don't remember who plays him, he's a really good older French actor. And he, he he every time he's on screen it helps a lot. He's not allowed to do a lot of fun things. He yells in a fun way at his little minions and at the people he has to interact with. He's a he's a like if you know the old actor from the 50s Brian Dunleavy he reminded me of like a French version of that guy he's a mm -hmm. he's a screen bully essentially he's not a bully but he just comes in and is the boss of everything and you just you feel that and that's a fun feeling because you, you, the rest of our heroes are just aimless wandering the underground and all these strange places a lot of it was shot in the Paris subway system a lot of it was shot in sets that were meant to look like it i can't tell the difference it's a really really accomplished film visually it's a really mm -hmm. weird magical 80s sort of music video world that is nonetheless creepy and underground and not meant to be for you to spend significant times of your life in right and so it has that sort of you're lost down here you're you're you know what i mean and I love that about it too, but it's all slick and modern. It's not like the, 
TV's, you know, Beauty and the Beast, where they all lived in like the turn of the century tunnels and stuff that are beneath the subway system. And it's the subway, it's actually the transit system that keeps them safe from the outside world. That's a neat idea, too, by the way. Yeah. Um, Um, But this this is like they're all a part of it the trains, the mechanics of it all. It's really, really wild and crazy movie. Yeah, Christophe Lambert uh, looking uh, like his best. Uh, I was sitting here going, man, he just looks like 80s era Sting. And then I'm reading, oh, yeah, it was meant to be, the whole role was meant to be played by Sting. By Sting, I believe Uh, it. He's got yellow, spiky 80s hair. He spends the first half of the movie in a tuxedo. So wherever he goes, he's in this tuxedo. The, the, The... the movie poster has him holding this basically a fluorescent light, which is yeah. like a, some sort of lightsaber or something. Trust me, it's not. There's nothing like that in this. There are a, a whole bunch of really funny, if you like watching people's pants fall down and people fall flat on their face and slip on banana peels like Keystone Cops chase scenes. <laughs> Uh, the movie starts with this car chase scene where he's like losing the chase and the cops are bumping into him because he's trying to pick the right tape to put in the tape machine. And then when it, when the tape goes in and the music starts, he's Wah! he's like hot rod superstar guy. And then when the machine eats the tape, <laughs> he gets all pissed and he loses his mojo and he almost gets caught. But he's saved <laughs> by his knowledge of the underground and, and that's... That's really the story of all these people. It's it works very clean. I mean, as, even though it's is pointless, there's I guess there's something of a love triangle in it, but uh, not really. It, mm-hmm. it 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 works it works because it thematically it is very clean. <laughs> Why these people are not part of the mainstream is very clear. They're different, and this is the place that they found and this is the place where they gather and like that part of it I really get loud and clear and connected with much much more like I say the second time I watched it hopefully Subway because I think it's fantastic film um especially if you like 80s fashions and 80s nostalgia it it this shows you what it was. It's so difficult yeah. for us to recreate that in the modern era. I think the seventies and sixties even more. And I think then the further back you go, the more filmmakers have a handle on it. I've seen very few eighties films in the modern era that, that really nail it. You know, like there's some things about it, stranger things, but they don't get it really. I think the best one I ever saw and it took place in 1980. So is uh, Super 8 by J.J. Abrams, because that movie shows what a 70s wasteland the 80s were. All this leftover shag carpet and all this crappy furniture that chased us through. And that was an important part, like the difference between the crazy, weird, brightly colored three-tone sweater you were wearing and the strange olive green furniture you were sitting on and the old phone from the 60s hanging on the wall like that to me is that's really hard to recreate from scratch you just had to live through that to some degree Mm -hmm. this film's lovely because it has a a sense of that these people are very slick very embracing the 80s eric sarah's bass is one of those really cool ones without the knobs on the top they're on the bottom and it's you know it's about as big as a lunchbox and it it 
1985, not a lot of people would have... Now we know what that is, but not a lot of people would have seen that. And it looks like it's a magical instrument. Like it's a... Like that's the lightsaber of the movie. You know what I mean? It, it, mm-hmm. it, it, that sort of thing I think is enchanting. It doesn't get old because it, it's so part of that. And right, Subway's great. Um, sadly, Gordon Eleven did not uh, care for the film uh, oh. as much as you did. Sorry. How did he oh, sum sorry. it up? Um, not enough drama, action, suspense, or dialogue. Um, I was like, I was hoping it would be as exciting or suspenseful as Leon or The Fifth Element or Joan of Arc. I must say, I was disappointed. Not enough. It's, it's not a goofy, enough drama. It's a goofy comedy yeah. that it's just like the Last Battle to some degree. It's a goofy comedy that does yeah. have a weird streak of danger running through it. But it's a, it I I wouldn't call it a comedy, but that but that's what it is. It, yeah. It, that that's how you should approach it with your with your sense of comedy and fun, because if you if you're not having fun and turn it off, it's not it never starts to make more sense or anything. Sure. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's go to our um, our PG uh, entry into the uh, uh, into the uh, show today, and that is uh, the big blue. The big um, blue. The Big Blue, uh, the most successful French movie of the 80s, I believe. Yep. Um, yeah, let's see. It is standpoint. the rivalry between Enzo and Jacques, two childhood friends and now world-renowned freedivers, because everybody knows all of the freedivers. Um, <laughs> the rivalry becomes a beautiful and perilous journey into oneself and the unknown. <laughs> Um, so my girlfriend, when the, back when this movie was out, we rented this and she loved this movie. Two it, hours and 48 minutes. Yeah. She loved this. Oof. She, the American version was about 30 minutes shorter than that. Um, which is what I had seen a couple times throughout the years. Cause we had to watch big blue cause it had dolphins in it. And because my girlfriend really identified with like, this was key. She really identified with. Uh, Roseanne Arquette's character like a lot okay um and but to her the movie was about dolphins and it it isn't (laughs) it's not about (laughs) dolphins um yeah I mean well the I mean everything there's dolphins in it no doubt and our our hero played by uh, Jean-Marc Barr um is it has a relationship with dolphins, no question, and a relationship with the ocean. But both him and Jean Renault are these guys who grew up, you know, in the same era and, and are very connected and do these free diving competitions. And free diving is basically just going really, really deep in the ocean, deeper than you're supposed to go, deeper than submarines at the time were really should be going. And. And then just being down there, it's hard to explain. I, the old, best way I can explain mm-hmm. it, and this is going to be a helpful, I think, comparison as we talk about Big Blue, is it's mountain climbing in the opposite direction. There you go. Um, and I'll just tell you, I I love mountain climbing movies because the nature that takes you someplace you've never been. There's always the dramas built into the thing. You just know you're going to have all these complications, but, but 
a mountain climbing movie is you trying to get to the top of the mountain, and then if you get there, you're trying to get down without dying. And this is different. These guys meditate down there. They become a different person. They become a part of the world in a completely different way. Um, so it's, it's, you just keep visiting. You don't, you know, and, and as he says in the movie, he says this to his girlfriend who just told him that he's pregnant, that she's pregnant. Um, you know, I keep running out of reasons to come back to the surface is what he says. It's harsh. Mm. So, it's, it's hard. And wow. he's just, but that's, he's not a dick. He's just lost in this. He's, he's lost in it. He's obsessed with it, and the movie is about obsession and and addiction, I guess, is what I would say. And to me, that's what mountain climbing movies are about. It's a great movie in um, Everest, which is a recent movie, in 3D, Rob, um, which is based on uh, Jordan uh, Krakauer's Into Thin Air, which is a fantastic right. book. Um, and... Krakauer is a character in the movie played by somewhat sardonically, but mostly journalistically neutral by Michael Kelly. He was a great guy to cast as this. And when they're all sitting around having a party at the final, at their, you know, their, their final major base camp, the last bit of civilization they're going to see for a while, um, you know, and having a toast or whatever. And then at the, you know, politely the journalist sits there and then he finally says, okay, I got to ask everybody. Uh, why and and it's Josh Brolin and then it's followed by everybody repeating it because it's there that's what they always say why climb the mountain because it's there Uh Ah, ah, ah. and he he lets the joke pass politely again and then he says no really (laughs) this is the part I have to understand and I and a character, a climber, explains the magical mystery, the amazement of it, the whatever, in these very poetic words to him, which he has to accept as an answer because it, it's an honest answer. But it doesn't, mm-hmm. it, and I like these movies, but it doesn't, and this movie has the same sense of mystery or same sense of problem with it, which is that I don't I don't get it. You Once you go above a certain level, elevation you are dying literally the elevation Mm -hmm. is killing you once you go to a certain depth in the ocean it it's killing you and it every time you do it it hurts you and makes you worse and and i get that the view from the top of the mountain or whatever that the mountain's some sort of manly wilderness metaphor or that the deep of the ocean is this escape into this magical world where nothing can touch you and everything is peaceful and quiet but I just still don't get it, and this movie doesn't help you get it. What it, what it, what I, I never get it, and I'm always like, well, you got Mount Everest has got 400 corpses on it, right? It you died doing this for what? Why? Uh, the the journalist, the author asked the question, the storyteller asked the question, and there's no, there's never been an acceptable answer. There is stupid. You shouldn't do it. There's no reason to do it. There are other things in life that are meaningful that you are completely sacrificing, whether financially or whether with massive amounts of time or whether with your very life to do this thing. 
mm-hmm. that isn't even that special a thing anymore. Nobody's going to write an article about you in any sort of anywhere just because you got to the top of K2 or whatever. Nobody cares. As Joel very accurately points out in the setup for this particular movie. All those famous free divers. He says, no. Yeah. You you can become a renowned free diver, but you can't become renowned being a free diver. That is exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, but, you may be famous amongst other free divers. But these guys are competitive with each other. These based on real yeah. people, one of whom was was around at the time of the or they both of whom were around. One of them helped write it, the younger mm-hmm. of the two. And Jean Renault's character who who I won't spoil what happens to him in the movie, but he the in real life that guy quit free diving to become a politician and denounced the movie. But the movie, but like all Luke Besson films, this movie was never going to be some accurate biography. What's amazing about it, and what's, I mean, there's a couple things. To me, what's really amazing about it is that you're watching a, a true story be told in this weird fly on the wall cinema verite documentary style, and yet it's the Andes in in Chile. It's the Greece. It's the bottom of the ocean. It's all these exotic, amazing places that the cinematography, that the location shooting, that um, Eric Serra's score, again, romanticize. Mm-hmm. And so it's this travelogue that's really, really amazing. The, our hero lives in this tiny room with a cot surrounded by, um, you know, breathing air oxygen tanks. Sure. When When... Roseanne Arquette's character leaves her life in New York working for a newspaper and goes to join him out of love. And he's he's all happy to see her. And then he shows her, well, this is where I live. I live in this little closet. And you can just see the look on her face is like, well, this, whatever. But she's smitten. She's addicted, too, in her own way. She's not... Right. She, she's she's a weird character. I don't know that, that Besson knows how to write for an American woman. So he writes this quirky, zany, Audrey Hepburn kind of fantasy of a woman. And then Rosanna's left to navigate that and make that somehow work. And she really, in the early goings, doesn't do a very good job of it. Because I don't think anyone could because it's just written in this stupid way. There's the scene where she fraudulently convinces her... her editor played by uh griffin dunn really fu- these yeah, scenes yeah. are fun but they're stupid they don't belong in a serious movie and the big blue more than any of the rest of these maybe not more than the last one but it on par with the last one is a very very serious movie ultimately yeah and so so the zaniness and weirdness is the lifeblood that runs through it this unusual culture and the strange way of doing things but Tonally, you just can't be pausing to have these goofy, comic, over-the-top conversations and stuff. It right. it, it t- really takes you out of the trance that the thing otherwise casts over you. Um, right. Because well, it is beautiful. Cinematography is amazing. The music is incredible. It's just, right. it, it, it is worthy of being a big epic tale because it does tell a piece of, of biography. Um... And Rosanna, when she's got to play this exasperated, completely head over heels in love, in true love with this guy. And this is how true love works. And I think this is probably what Jen really liked about the film, is that 
that that part rings true. Like that that I don't know right. why I'm with you. I shouldn't be. I hate this, and yet you you that insanity that is love that 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 just struck you with this guy. Yeah. It's tough, man. It's a real tough burden to carry. And yet it's, it's like him. She can't quit him and he can't quit this, even though it's killing him. And in the end, she has to accept that. She, she says, you know, uh, go, go find it. My love, I think is her word, which is a very French mm. way of saying and then he goes on this journey. It's almost certainly going to end in his death. Right. But he can't help it. It's obsession and addiction. That part the movie really gets. And it it doesn't tell an honest biography of these people in any way, shape, or form. It just completely doesn't. But but the way we're the way we're addicted to each other and the way we're single mind can become single minded about things like those types of people are represented in the story the mountain climbers of the sea essentially and yeah and it it really and more than that it just the stylisticness of it it's so it's so magical and gorgeous when it needs to be repeatedly and yeah. you never ever get sick of going on those escapades. So I love, and John Renault's really, really funny. This is where the funny, uh, I mean, he's been goofy and weird and funny in these previous movies where mm -hmm. he doesn't ever speak, but this movie, this guy talks a lot. He's always talking and, and he's, he's, he's great in it. He's the, he's the, he's the antagonist somewhat in the movie because from a free diving standpoint, he's a competitor, which these guys right. weren't quote competitors in real life. There wasn't such a real thing as competitive <laughs> free diving. There were right. records that you could set and stuff, which the movie makes a go at, but it wasn't like, you know, all the free divers show up in Sicily or whatever. It kind of is that, <laughs> but it is a dive championship. Well, but they're, the you know, they're tied less into the world of sports than they are into the world of science and, you know, other ways that you we actually people were using this and therefore, and this is important, would fund it. And the movie right. is honest about that sort of thing, which I appreciate because you really, the authenticity of the freediving is off the hook cool, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there's dolphins. Um, let's, let's. Well, and there's an American just... version and a French version. Yeah. There's a version in French and a version in American. And there's a, and it's, it's it's like a slightly different movie each way. Uh, it, it it they reshot stuff where they did the French people spoke French, and then in American, the most of the French people speak English because. That's their common language, which only makes mm -hmm. sense that it would be that way. It's a weird case where I think, because there's some English dubbing of some of the non-English, smaller French roles that I hate because nobody likes a right. dub if you have any taste at all. I don't know how you got to show 199 of ours if you watch the dubbed version of stuff like but i i chose the french last time i watched the big blue which was the first time i'd ever seen the three-hour version of it and this time i chose the english and the english version i think is the better version of the movie which is a weird thing to say about a french film right but i think that's i really do think between the greek 
and German and Italian and French and American characters. It's their common language. And so when they're speaking in accented English to each other in groups, it, it actually, the movie makes more sense that way. So mm -hmm. just a mm -hmm. weird well, bit of trivia. Yeah. So let's get into the nineties here. And um, oh, when the nineties uh, come. Yeah. When the nineties come. And now we're getting, you know, so these are some films that, um, you we'll know, sing a different uh, song when the 90s come, yeah. as the man says. Mm -hmm. um, Luc Besson is starting to become, uh, you know, the big blue was uh, was something of a hit. and, and uh, Huge hit in France. Yeah. Huge I don't know France, how but... it could have been much of a hit here, but I really do think big blue penetrated in America mm -hmm. or in a way these other movies didn't. It had a hot American actress in it. It had stuff that you that would make you... Uh, go to it. Not many people went to it, but it was always going to be an right. art film in America. Um, but kept it on HBO and stuff, despite it having quite a sure. bit of French in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so you know, Lucas also uh, he's certainly starting to <clears throat> uh, gain some traction, and he does uh, La Femme Nikita. Yeah, which is just um, called just Nikita in Nikita. France, which is yeah. a, such a better title. Um, uh, the convicted. Convicted felon Nikita isn't going to jail. She's given a new identity and trained stylishly as a top secret spy slash assassin. I like that she's trained stylishly. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's all stylish, um, baby. I hope I've yeah, gotten that. I hope in all this stylish. talk of plot and character, I've gotten across how stylish these damn things are. They are really, mm -hmm. really stylish. There's no doubt. Um... This is the slickest, sleekest one of all of them, in fact. Uh, uh, both there's both main characters, um, her handler and her. You'll have to say their names for me. Oh, here we go. Uh, and Pariold and Mark Dure. Yeah, but it's Checky Cario yeah. or whatever his name is. I can never know how to say it. Uh, he's that he's that he's not Jean Renault actor who it takes the Jean Renault parts in American films that Jean Renault turns down. Uh, this is uh, IMDb is not helpful here. Uh, so we have um, Patrick Fontana, um, Elaine. No, it starts with a T, and his last name starts with a K, and both words are unpronounceable for me. I just tried to say it and failed. Um, all right, this is not. Oh, this is. Um, hmm, not coming. This is. Uh, oh, oh, yes, Checky Cario. Yeah. Bob. Yeah, playing Bob. You know him hey. if you saw him. I almost certain you yeah. would because he's in plenty of things and he's really, really good in this. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, this guy. Yep. From Tur he's Turkish. Is he? He's yeah, in, well, I mean, he's, he's in only born, French and American movies that I've born, seen. Born in Turkey, grew up in in Paris. Yeah, okay. he, uh, so, but it gives him a it gives him sort of a unique, you know, he's a unique guy. He's a unique screen presence. He does have that sort of different type of of ethnicity about him, and he's an interesting dude. Um, Nikita. She's a absolutely spaced out, drugged out anarchist you'd say she's a rebellious teenager but when it gets down to killing 
police officers. There's this, they, they rob this pharmacy to get some barbiturates and stuff. And, and the cops show up and, and everybody, for whatever reason, this is, would be pretty uncommon in France in 1990, but for whatever reason, they all have like Uzis and machine guns and stuff and shotguns and handguns. And this huge shootout happens in this pharmacy. It, 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 everything goes bad at the pharmacy at night goes bad in a stylish way, no question. And and she's got her headphones on the whole time. And so uh, the, the movie Face Off rips off this idea that she's in this weird trance-like simple place where for some it gives her the magic power to sort of waltz through this without being harmed, This all this craziness where everybody guns each other down. And and she's kind of hiding behind the counter at the end of it when a, a police officer, and I don't know if this guy is played by, he's only in the movie briefly here, but this guy comes up to her, and this scene is always striking to me, and I'm going to just walk you through it piece by piece because it's it, it spoils this, a rather big moment that is unexpected, actually, but it's right at the beginning of the movie and as part of the premise of the movie. But he kind of leans down next to her, and he leans down, and he, he takes her pulse... And, you know, he's at first he comes around the corner and he's ready to shoot another bad guy, basically, which she absolutely is. But he takes her pulse. He looks at her. She kind of her head sort of turns to him and her eyes start moving. So we know she hasn't been shot because she's just sitting there still. And her headphones sort of slip off of her. And he kind of is trying to help her. And she slowly raises his handgun to his head. And then, bam, and we go to black. She just assassinates this cop who's trying to help her in this sort of beautiful, touching moment at the end of this crazy mm. shootout. Again, Luke Besson, this is why you come to these things, for these stunning and yet and dangerous and totally unexpected moments. So from the get-go, our hero is a absolute murdering freak. Now, she's high on whatever and has lost her mind. And I mean, but that's... that. I mean that nothing ever really excuses this, unfortunately. Right. Um. That said, she goes through this process. This is a just gonzo performance by this actress. She's so off the hook in this. This is something Nikita's been, you know, the 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 crazy chick turned into an unstoppable female hot female right. spy has this story's been told eight trillion times many 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 times a dozen times by Besson himself since this film it right. had not one but two television adaptations in America I guess technically one was in Canada um and they all suck they all are awful <laughs> in comparison point of no return with Bridget Fonda somehow is it's terrible because it just doesn't get it just doesn't get the insanity of this premise and right. the insanity. It, and this this movie gets it. It's it's she, when she gets sentenced to life in prison, she's just screaming, "You you mother effers!" Just screaming. She has to be like carried on shoulders, kicking and screaming out of this courtroom. It's a stunning scene where she completely loses her mind. She's essentially tortured in prison. And doesn't deal with it in any sort of way. She's weird. She's a young woman who cares if her mom knows where she is. But she's killed somebody cold-bloodedly, even if it was in some strange drug-induced trance state. 
Right. And isn't, again, isn't somebody that you really, although you don't like seeing people tortured or, or seeing this frail, skinny French woman getting brutalized and beaten by this huge, you know, angry cop character. And she's given these injections that just totally screw her up in prison. And then eventually we think that she's died, that she's killed herself, but she wakes up and she's only killed herself officially. She wakes up across the table from the suit and tie guy played by Checky. And again, really in a really knowing, he gets his moments in, in the emotional moment because he's an emotional guy. And I really do appreciate that about him. He's not, but with her, he's just this master manipulator. He doesn't care about her one bit, especially to start. Um, he takes her through this stylish training where she loses computer <laughs> hacking and she yeah. learns Taekwondo and she learns all this stuff about firearms. And then he puts this great big pistol, like in her little hand, it looks like this giant weird thing, uh, and arms her with it as part of this training. And she turns around and points it at him and click, it just clicks and he smacks it out of her hand and he turns around and he goes, he goes, the first the first rule is the first bullet is never for you, he says. I don't know what that means or what is actually going on in this lesson, but it's very poetic and harsh. And he shoots her in the leg, and she just it again. It, when movies we've gotten so used to, I just watched uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which I loved. But but you know, people get shot in that, and then they a couple seconds later they're quipping and stuff. She gets shot mm -hmm. in the leg with this arm cannon and she just screams and the film just like all right just she's gonna be screaming for a while and she's sort of like spinning around in the floor just screaming and screaming and he's just standing there like waiting for it to be over and somebody tries to help her and she's flailing around so much that they just don't want to be near it's like this yeah again nikita what it gets is the insanity this is insane stuff um, I can't remember what he says. That'll clip your wings a bit or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is all, this is literally the boot camp part of the movie, which is the best part of the movie. Um, because the movie gets weird in French later, no offense, but it, 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 <laughs> she goes on her missions and they are interesting, but it becomes a relationship movie. She finds a boyfriend, they are living together and the movie really does become about her trying to make the relationship work while being, uh, on call a sleeper right. agent assassin. And while that's interesting, it's, it's a hard turn that this movie just is not able to pull off. In my opinion, the way it needs to, it's such a dark, awful, ugly, ugly, beautiful thing that when it, that when it domesticates itself and has relationship humor in it, like when you're on your honeymoon and you're in the bathroom uh, pretending to take a shower, but you actually have a high-powered rifle pointed out the window at, at your mark, and your boyfriend's like, hey, what's going on? Are you okay in there? And he's starting to freak out. It's That's farcical. And yeah. and the film just doesn't balance the farcical elements very well. But, but hats off, oh, just a 100% commitment by the actor in playing this crazy woman going through this crazy situation um hats off for the movie for being and looking and feeling cool when what it really is is horrible um i mean it does a really great job of that if if you were 
I had another friend of the same name who really connected with this movie because she was mad at everything. And this woman is just angry in a way she just can't even comprehend herself. Just lashes out in anger, viciousness and stuff. And yet there is some part of you, um, or at least some part of her, I guess I shouldn't speak for everybody, that, that does sort of yearn to be human. And once she gets off the drugs, does sort of want to have a boyfriend. And mm -hmm. th there's this crazy scene where she goes shopping in a grocery store and they give her a budget and she doesn't know what to do. So she finds this other good looking French woman that just follows her around and buys like 10 of everything she buys one of. And is just sneaking around behind her. And that's a great sequence because it's weird and it's human, which the film needs its humanity desperately. But it's also just too goofy. It, it it she's been she's a trained assassin now. She should be much better able to sneak around behind somebody than she manages in this grocery store. Right. And that sort of thing that sort of thing we're gonna start to see more and more here is kind of what undermines it, those weird tonal shifts. Oh that said, if this film had stayed relentless as the first half, I don't know, you know. It might be, you know, it's already something of a classic and oft right. imitated film, but it 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 might have been one of the best things ever if it really would have told the dark spy story. If you want to see an equivalent story um, that's really great, that's a little different. The This person's awesome spyness and revenge comes from grief rather than drug-induced, you know, uh, anarchy and psychosis but nevertheless dark dark spy movie um it's the rhythm section with blake lively that was made by the bond producers nobody watched that because because nobody wants to watch something that makes you feel miserable and i i appreciate that but when you have all this money and you spend your own money on a movie and that's and you make and all you made is spy movies and you make another spy movie that feels as real as one could possibly be. I think that's kind of neat in a weird way. I think that's like these producers yearning for to just skip the fantasy for a bit and give us mm -hmm. reality. And, and I like Nikita and I really like the rhythm section. So I like I like this stuff. I don't mind being subjected to this awful stuff. If it makes me feel something, I dig it. And this movie still does. I watched it again yesterday, and it still just makes you go, ah, Right. Until right. it stops doing that. Mm -hmm. Once it becomes, will Nikita escape her imprisoned life as an assassin? It, it's... Right. And I think a more authentic movie would know that there's only two forms of escape for that person and one is 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 to not exist anymore and then the other is to really go ahead and shut that humanity down for good if you're going to keep doing this and this film tries to find a happy medium which i think is a cop-out especially after the incredibly dark ending to the much more fun the the big blue that's <laughs> yeah which uh, again, was changed, I guess, for American audiences, but the French ending of that film is like, oh, uh, so. Um, so now our next film um, is 
yeah, uh, Nikita is, you know, uh, uh, I mean, for Luke Besson, uh, uh, the breakthrough, fans, everybody loves yeah, Nikita. The, uh, everyone, and then, um, and then comes Leon, the professional, um, the the role that made Jean Renault, uh, as and and frankly introduced the world to Natalie Portman, um. But yeah, then the, the, you know this is when so you know he starts getting some some major some major studios behind him and some major you know or I shouldn't say uh but like this is this is where like actors are like I I want to be in a Luke Besson film, um so then you get like Gary Oldman, Danny Aiello, all these guys you know start popping up in the uh, in these in these films, um so yeah so leon the professional uh hilarious film 12 year old matilda is reluctantly taken in by leon a professional assassin after her family is murdered an unusual relationship forms as she becomes his protege and learns the assassin's trade uh i didn't see leon back in the day i i never saw it until i saw the extended version of it which has all the creepy creepy relationship stuff put back mm-hmm. in but i recommend that version because i really do think that whatever luke says after the fact or you know or or natalie portman's parents or all the people who've had to comment on this crazy movie over the years i really do think that's where the movie is that's where the movie's at mm-hmm. i mean that's where it's at um there's this uh, underage hooker played by Marwen. She's got a long French name, and that was Luke Besson's uh, girlfriend at the time of the making of this film. Yeah, he he was married to uh, to Anne uh, Anne uh, Periode, uh, star of Nikita. But he was going out with dating. this sixteen-year-old yeah. French chick, which in France is 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 actually not. It's it's still something of, of slightly unusual, but it's certainly not illegal. Uh, matter of fact, I think you can go quite a bit younger than that in France um, and have it all be cool. So this underage stuff, which I, I maybe there were hints of it in these early movies. I just don't think there were enough women in the, the other films really to explore well, yeah. much of this. But this film starts out with that implicitly in a weird way with his then girlfriend and then goes on to be become... There's nothing explicit, like sexually, about it, but certainly to become an explicit underage, like relationship movie. Um, Jean Reno really does a great job, and Natalie Portman. I mean, Natalie Portman's off the hook good in this movie, yeah, as a young actress who decides that she's fallen in love with this guy, her protector. She's at that crazy, weird 12, 13 year old age where. You really are going through things. You have no comprehension outside of weird pop culture references, which she has dozens of, um, which don't help her communicate her feelings very well. Um, but and again, you've got this crazy uh, bad guy played by Gary Oldman. The assassination of Portman's family is, is just fucking brutal mm-hmm. scene of a film right um it just i mean him not showing the kids head get blown off is the only moment of respite he gives us in this sequence the, and, and that must be his idea of 
You know, that, I took that, one yeah. for the team, mm, everyone. Yeah, you you didn't guys. have to actually yeah. experience the carnage of that. But that, by that point, it doesn't matter because you've seen so much carnage. And I guess this is the cleverness of the storytelling that you just, you feel and feel like you've seen and know the impact of that. And then, there, of course, there's the imagination's always more vivid than the seeing the thing anyway. Maybe not in this case. I don't know. The point is, her sister that she doesn't like, her dad who who's a, works for the mob, or mom who's mm-hmm. sort of a typical obnoxious mob wife, and her baby brother who she dotes over are all killed by a gangster, by a gang of dirty cops. He- narcotics cops, of course, headed by Gary Oldman. I just, I'm not sure, this is great era for Gary Oldman, you know, Data Grace, which we talked about, Bram Stoker's Dracula, he's, he's so, this is where he is, you know, he's a great actor now, and I love him for everything he does, he's a better actor now, a more versatile one, a more emotional one, like, I, I adore that, but this, when he first came on the scene in the late 80s, and these early 90s roles where he's really featured, where he just is crazy, and you had no idea what he was going to do, from moment to moment, like I feel like, not that I want him to go back on the sauce and be crazy and be drunk for <laughs> all his films or or live that kind of life anymore. Like, but I, I'm glad that he doesn't do that. In fact, and that he's yeah. cleaned up his act, like on screen and off, truly. But these, it, but there's nothing like Gary Oldman during this late '80s, early '90s era where he just is playing crazy people because he it feels like the craziness comes from deep, deep within him. Even if it's Dracula's eccentricity, you know, or it's this guy's huge temper tantrums or, or narcissism, it's it just is it's hypnotizing. It's just is crazy, and you watch it, and you go, yeah. And and there's a great point of comparison between this guy and the guy he plays in the next film, where where one really is like whoa, and the other one is oh, you're doing this again, and you can really sort of feel the page turn on this type of character. Mm-hmm. But while it lasted, I mean, I, I again, I don't know. It, it's we live in a much more and for the better politically correct era. So I don't, I don't want to hype the, the crazy method acting so that you could rationalize and and you know defend your own addictions and alcoholism in the course of creative endeavor. But Besson loved it enabled it, encouraged it, caught it magically on film. And Oldman, because he's being encouraged and defended, is free to just go off the hook. And before we get back to what the core of the thing is, that villain character is one of the great villains of the 90s. He's up there in the top five. He really is awful. Yeah. And yet his crazy fears and insecurities and paranoia does humanize him in a strange way. It doesn't make us like him or forgive him, but it when you see that it comes from that crazy place, most of our bad behavior comes from that place of insecurity, truly, and, and fear, where we're scared and so we lash out. Or we're embarrassed and mortified by ourselves, so we double down on the stupid thing we did. Like, this guy just is the embodiment of that bad behavior. And I I related to that more than I wish I would have after the life <laughs> that I've had to this point. Uh, but again, very violent, very hard R. Um, but it's, 
it's this tender French assassin guy, Renault, when he puts the sunglasses on and goes out assassinating, is pretty heartless and cold-blooded. But otherwise, he likes watching old classic musicals, and mm -hmm. he has a very warm relationship with his mob handler, played by Danny Aiello, who's clearly using him as a tool and is is lying to him, and we all see that. And the fact that, that Renault plays this guy, and that he's written as an innocent, that when he has this yeah. all-too-worldly, and yet also a very... Because Portman's character has seen all this bad stuff, has this awful smoke cigarettes, uses terrible language, but it still has this little inner little girl in her, and I just think Natalie's just playing what's there straight, and that's how to do it. And but it's still sort of magical because it is, it is a really, really well constructed and well captured character. And in the longer version of the movie, it's more her movie, which is why I like it better. It's really the mm -hmm. professional in the other one. In Leon, we're all, you know, he has a name and. And there's a relationship there. But there's all kinds of objectionable stuff. There's stuff where she gets, he lets her drink at a fancy restaurant that he takes out to. And she gets super drunk, like right away, like a little 10 pound kid. I don't know what she weighs in this. She, Natalie's this right. little stick person of a, of a firecracker person in this. And, and, and there's an, uh, there's another scene where they play charades with dressing up with all the weird crap in the, in the closet for this hotel room that was left behind. It, it's creepy, man. It makes yeah. you feel uncomfortable. I don't think John is, uh, I, I don't think uh, Luke or anybody is saying this. Yeah, this, these two should get together, whatever his other proclivities off the screen and, and you right. know, and, and whatever, whatever the actual French, you know, um, system systematically believes is appropriate or isn't, uh, the film knows it makes you feel super uncomfortable repeatedly, often with the violence, but every single time with the innuendo and, but their relationship is, is warm and magical and you want it to work out for him. And, and his sacrifice is really, really meaningful. And her, her lost sort of puppy existence without him is heartbreaking. And so it all works. Leon is, um, I don't know if it's his best movie, but it's, it's Jean Renault typified in this particular type of yeah. storytelling. It, 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 or, or, Jean, because of the duality of the character, you really, he gets to do it all, but it's also, it's Luke Besson, it's pure, like unfiltered, yeah, unencumbered. All, this only could have been made by Luke Besson. You know, it's been off imitated right. again. But this story is unique and interesting. And and I watched Leon the Professional as it has now been the names shoved together once right. a year because I think it's it's every time I watch it, it is worth revisiting for some of the days. This scene where she. She plans her revenge against these cops. She finds out who they are. She get she uh, shows up 
as uh, she observes their workplace, she shows up as a food delivery person uh, with this yeah. book bag full of weapons and stuff. And that scene, again, I, I won't tell you exactly how it plays out, but that scene has so much frail and fearful humanity in it by all involved. And it, I find it just amazing because of that. So, so I don't know. Yeah. There's objectionable stuff in it, but the film's well, self-awareness, I think, really helps. Mm-hmm. And that he's wanted to make a sequel of it for years, but it, which he wrote, apparently... And then repurposed for something. So I guess that idea is off the table. Yeah. But because of the aforementioned Gamon Europa Corp breakup, Gamon owns the rights to the professional and have have as their revenge have uh, not allowed him to make that. Right. And right. I I think I was up all night. Sorry. I think. That's good. I think this film yeah. should end where it ends. I don't think an adult, even with Natalie playing the role, which might be really cool, I don't think an adult Matilda assassin movie, I, don't, I, don't, I really don't want to see her still being an assassin. I, at the right. end of this film, I really hope she yeah. finds a, a, a human life to live. I really That's my hope when it's over. So. Mm-hmm. And if yeah. you can get to the end of this thing, this angry, cynical, violent thing, and feel that way, then somebody did good work. Probably a lot of people did. That's how it happens. Right. Very stylish. Um, That'd be the funny very, st- <laughs> very stylish. Well, speaking well, of stylish. Luke, you feel like the word stylish really was sort of invented for him. Because it's kind often of, yeah. style without substance, and that's often a fair criticism. Very often. But, nope. st- he's, man... He's got style. He really does have style. Well, speaking of style, uh, next film is, um, I mean, this is as big budget sci-fi as you can get. It Um, is the most expensive European production at that point. It it beat out 1492, which before that was the largest budgeted European funded film. Um. A, a little over a hundred million dollars at the time. That was tons and tons of money. Right. So you get Bruce Willis, you get Mila Jovovich, Ian Holm, Gary Oldman, Chris Tucker, Luke Perry, Brian James, Time, Tiny Tom, uh, Tom Tiny Lister, Ian Holm. Did you say Ian Holm? I did say Ian Holm. Okay, because he's the uh, Ian, very, he's the secret weapon funny. of the movie in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, he is absolutely he's very funny. Um. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it's the fifth element. It is, uh, oh, here we go. In the colorful future, some would say stylish. <laughs> In the colorful future, a cab driver unwittingly becomes the central figure in the search for a legendary cosmic weapon to keep evil and Mr. Zorg at bay. An <laughs> evil space cloud is hurling its yep. way towards Earth. Uh, a, a, a selfish, short-sighted, violent industrialist is in cahoots mm-hmm. with it telepathically and is trying to pave the way for it. This future contains variety of alien characters and things, not in a terribly useful way, and more of a uh, uh, men in black sort of way, we'll say. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah. 
but it's fun. Lots of prosthetics, lots of people wearing weird old masks. It's it's all done very old style and very realistically. Mm-hmm. Um, it has one of the world's best ever screen cat performances in it. Bruce Willis's cat is right. Has this perpetually uh, like bad trip base expression <laughs> on its face all the time, which I really really enjoy. Um. It was Bruce Willis or Mel Gibson and it ended up being Mel Gibson was for the first choice. They got the right guy with Willis. Willis is perfect in this as this former military ranger guy turned, you know, crabby cab driver of the future. Um, He's really delightful in it. I mean, his yeah. it his his American straight guy, like he gets that in a way that I think Besson gets it, but I think Besson, if you'd had somebody like Gibson who would have bought into the eccentricities of the story, you'd have had a zanier, weirder, harder to glom onto thing. Willis is Willis underplays everything. He gives, he delivers every quip with perfect precision he you know what i mean like he Mm -hmm. and he's like us like he's our portal into this world in a way that this movie has to have that or it's not a success i really do believe that his love for this supreme being that gets regenerated delivered and then regenerated on earth into mia jovovich jovovich sorry um in in uh, these two movies here that we're about to talk about are, are Mia's best performances of her career without doubt. Right. She's so good in this and, and so good in the next film um, that you really think she could have been something special. And she, and she's not that she's nothing, but you know, when you're, when you're dating Luke Besson and creating a different alien language with him and your free time. And I mean like that, would appear to inspire creativity in a good way. Whereas when you're married to Paul W.S. Anderson and you're doing Resident Evil movies, all of them, it, that would appear to, what's the opposite of inspire? Prohibit creativity? Yep. I'm not sure it prohibits it. It spoils it, though, somehow. Stunts it. Yeah, but I, it, uh... I don't think it's the op- opposite of inspire we're looking for. It. it it's 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 the type of creativity that changes for the worse, not oh, so sure. much yeah. the level yeah. of it. Um. Anyway, I don't want to get into those. I'm I'm totally out of time here, and these next two movies are kind of big ones. Um. But Fifth Element, you all should have seen Fifth Element. I mean, if you're our age, you experience this movie. It's crazy, cartoonish, over the top, whacked out, and bizarrely unexpected turns at every moment. It is full of soft. <clears throat> humanity uh the people while ter- doing terrible things for the wrong reasons almost all of them uh are 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 aren't evil you know the president of the universe isn't single-minded his generals are stupid but they're not they're trying to do the right thing and defend the earth um luke perry's character in the prologue isn't a bad guy he's just really really scared seeing something completely mm-hmm. out of this world um so it's that stuff gets us into trouble, you know what I mean? But incredible side performance too. Matthew Kasovitz as a door-to-door apartment mugger. Oh god, yeah. Holy smokes, every second of that is funny and I can watch it. <laughs> that 
Yeah. And um and uh Baker, I can't remember his name, we just died last year as the library cop in Seinfeld. Those two characters I can watch do their scenes just 14 times in a row and laugh at the same amount every time. It's so fun. Um Byron Brian James is in this. He's fun. Mm -hmm. Christopher Fairbank has this weird scientist. He's the guy. Perfect. He's that guy. So fun. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that stuff, that stuff's super fun. Uh, Mia Jovovich, super sexy, and yet again, and typical, uh, and it it doesn't change until we get to the end of this film cycle, is playing an innocent. She's just totally innocent. And the film, this film's stupid in that it keeps saying that. It's like, yeah, she's the ultimate badass of the universe, but she has this strange, vulnerable quality to her, doesn't she? Mm -hmm. It's like, we're all like, yeah, yeah, we see that. Shut the (laughs) F up about it. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, what, yep. Why do we need more than one character to make that observation? I'm not sure. Just in case it's lost on us. Or because at this point, with this amount of money being spent, you're probably getting a few studio notes that you have to follow. Right. The film's uh, bonkers and crazy, but never boring. Very fun. At the time, it had the largest indoor explosion ever. The shootout at the end is really stupid and loud, and I get really sick of it, but it has one great moment in it where he gets some help from this upper crust guy that I, that I love. That's Luke Besson on a plate. I won't ruin it for mm-hmm. you, but you meet the guy ahead of time a little bit. He's just part of the elite who travel through the universe on cruise ships essentially and lives the high life and doesn't speak the language. But when our hero really needs him to toss him the gun at the end of the movies, this dude's solution is really fantastic. And it's, my favorite moment in the movie, which is why I mention it. My least favorite stuff in the movie, and I, I and this is the part where I got to take a minute. I know we're running out of time. Yeah, but this is this takes some talking about is uh, Chris Tucker's Ruby Rod, right? In one way, I wouldn't change anything about it because it's like nothing else you've ever seen in a movie. The role was written for Prince, and Prince was going to play it. Mm-hmm. And Prince would have played it better because Prince would have played it, you know, as Prince. I mean, he would have played it as Prince and not a cheap Prince imitation. Not, yeah, and uh, yeah, not not a not a um, a caricature of Prince. Yeah, although it's not just Prince. The cool thing about Tucker yeah. is that he's an actor and he brings like ten different things to it. That whereas Prince would probably brought in maybe two if we were lucky. Right. Um, just like Christopher Lambert is probably better, even though Sting is a decent enough actor, Lambert is probably better for Stubway than Sting would have been. Mm-hmm. Because it just has this actorly way about him, even if he's a bit odd. Tucker is off the hook, but the and it's great. It's one of a kind. Like I, It's just hard for me to complain too much about that. He's so committed to this the craziness of it and the comedy of it. And everybody I watched... It and with the theater with loved him in it, but it does typify a problem with storytelling on this level that Besson has, which is that he introduces this crazy wild card guy as we're barreling toward the ending of a film that's ostensibly about saving the universe, and where it should tighten up a little bit, it goes off the rails with side stories. The weird reggae, everybody gets high and has sex, take off of the spaceship at the end is 
mm-hmm. crazy stupid, and I hate that sequence. Um, and the fact that Tucker gets all the way through the cruise ship exploding and the escape pod and all the way to the final moments in the final showdown of the film, and it's still there, it doesn't help either. Like, that character's utility is, is gone. We don't need comic relief here. Right. Um, but that's nothing bad about that's nothing bad that Tucker did it, it people often criticize the performance and I really think that I think the performance is beyond criticism I think it's it's crazy good comic performance yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just really in the wrong place at the wrong time in a ways that it's really tough for me and, and others to get over so yeah, hey it is it is it is a very strange uh yeah to have it you, the the point that I think uh, that that's important that you bring them. It's not that this is. It, it's that this character is introduced when in, when when he is introduced, and it's just. I mean, it is crazy bonkers, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it it serves a brief function, and then why are we? Why is this guy still around? Why are we still? You know, it, so it is. It's it's. Tucker's um, a really, really good actor. He's not in a lot of movies I like, so I don't have a lot of chance to talk about right. him. But I would put this and his his small role in um, Silver Linings Playbook as evidence that he is outstanding. I also like that he's rich and he just doesn't do every movie that comes across. We don't see him a lot. And because of that, he's still kind of a special treat and we don't get sick of his more obnoxious sort of side of his comedy yeah. but but it's um, it's crazy i did we didn't even mention ian Holm. he plays a priest and an expert in uh interstellar phenomena <laughs> and he's basically the head guy of the cult that worships this coming of this supreme being knows the language can explain all the exposition to us and we go back that we were out of time for fifth element which is a film that you really could deep dive and have a pretty good time with you know yeah uh but it i don't feel bad because we did a uh episode on ian holm that you can find on youtube or all the usual places and we do talk about him specifically in this to a large extent yeah so. he's very fun in this he's yeah. very fun um so our final uh film of the luke Besson uh countdown um is uh and this isn't his last film uh, no, no, by any means. But by it is the last film in part one of one of one. a deep dive of the yeah. peasant. So, um, but the, it is uh, the messenger, the story of Joan of Arc, or in France, it's just called Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc. Joan de Arc. Joan de Arc. Um, yeah. This is not enough time to really go into this movie. Uh, as well as I would like, but Besson's not interested in the history of Joan of Arc. He's interested in the psychology of her. Right. And that's a wonderful place to spend two and a half hours with this insane religious zealot who, if left unencumbered by politics... Uh, would have driven the English out of France forever. <laughs> it's just right. 
his, history at least tells us that part in a million ways. She, despite her persecution and ultimate burning at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church, she was later sainted. That tells you what the church thinks of her. Mm-hmm. Um, the young girl who plays her in the early goings of the film, and again, Jovovich in her best ever screen performance, just that's outstanding. Just really, really good. Because Joan of Arc has been played as a militant by Ingrid Bergman. I mean, by some of the best ever actors. Um who truly was anointed and assigned by God to do these things. Um, I don't think this film believes in God. So I think a lot of what is happening takes on an entirely different meaning. And it shows the insanity and the, and the real hypocrisy of religion at the time. Religion's a tough one. You know, we talk about it on the show probably more than a lot of movie shows do, but we don't get into the, mm -hmm. the weeds of it. But it, it's a tough one because if you do take it literally, you are embracing a certain kind of insanity, you know. And this show shows that, that it's, it's not so much that she's embraced insanity, it's that she's been broken psychologically by some real horrors and in her grief and trauma turns to religion and interprets the signs of her mental instability as as in the language of the day of the language of magic of the time in the 1400s or whatever as mm -hmm. religious in nature she believes she's the messenger sent from god to cleanse the the realm of France from the English who hurt her as a child and and she convinces the king of this and the and the, the king the young prince actually the king's not dead yet technically the film doesn't really get into all that but the young prince played by John Malkovich in a fun performance by him and an understated performance by him which I like mm -hmm. um and the queen mother by, played by Faye Dunaway at an absolute ice cave <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah. she's got the you know the pointy hat with her like hair stretched back which actually stretches phase sort of angular features on her face back so she looks like she has this sort of medieval facelift so severe and intense and bravo for Faye for setting aside a little bit of dignity and just going for it to play this person right. at first phase like I don't care I don't care about what God thinks I don't care about what you people think I care about what the people think and the people believe in this crazy person. And that's why we're going to get behind her. What do we have to lose at this point? Chucky Carroll is back as sort of the general in charge of the campaign to rid English. He's, he's a very pragmatic fellow who has this yes. magic pixie dream girl of war thrust upon his campaign. It's a very delightful performance. Um, Really great. Timothy West is great as a as a a priest, a bishop or whatever at the end of the movie who really wants to do the right thing but is prohibited. Two, there's a heartbreaking moment where she's just been beaten in prison and she's begging him, please hear my confession because she's going to be burnt the next day. And he, you can see where there, his duty and his belief system says there's nothing 
better that I could do in this moment. Nothing more kind, more Christian that I could do, and yet he's prohibited to because she's been uh, uncommunicated. And he says, I, I cannot. And it just, it hurts. It hurts your soul. Yeah. <laughs> um, so many good performances. Desmond Harrington is great in this uh, as her sort of confidant. Oh, the, the shoulder talks like this. <laughs> I can't remember yeah. that guy's name. He's fantastic <laughs> in it. Um, um, yeah. He's just really fun in it. And. And it keeps things feeling light when things are super intense. Eddie Marsan as the head of the Brits is really fun, too. Um, but you can't talk about Messenger Joan of Arc without talking about Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. And that's where this movie goes from being really good to being really pretty awesome. It's also, I think where it jumped the shark into this isn't going to be the big historical hit that they're hoping it would be. Braveheart and such, Gladiator, that stuff hadn't come out yet, so this revival of the old, uh, you know, Gus called them all sword and sandal movies. Not a lot of sandals in this one, unless you really right. want your feet to be completely traumatized. But plenty of swords, no doubt. One really important one left in an empty field for a young French girl to find. Um, Dustin Hoffman arrives to her, and what is he? It's such yeah. a cool question yeah. that the movie doesn't answer. Is he her conscience somehow? It feels like it. But if it's part of her, he sure is being mean to her. Um... Yeah, during her trials, because what happens is, in a long story short, what happens is she does everything she says she's going to do. She becomes a legend, but diplomacy and and politics kind of get in the way. And when they need to rein her in, they want to use her as a figurehead, but they don't want her to be at war anymore. And her going to war and rallying the troops is like really, really inconvenient for the French. She gets arrested, and ultimately captured by the English and the English hate her and they completely mistreat her uh, while she's captive and they put her on trial and burn her at the stake but during her trial and her trial's fantastic medieval courtroom drama is how this movie ends and it's just outstanding her belief Joan's force of will her unstoppable inner belief in what she's doing and what she thinks and her purpose and yeah. her the force of will to make it happen at all costs. It's it's a that's an amazing thing to spend two and a half hours with, and and Dustin is so fantastic in that little role as that just judgmental archangel who comes to her in her final moments where she needs relief and kindness and just gives her the riot act, gives her the real trial. I love it. I don't know why. I love that it's steeped in religion. I, I think it's just a wonderful film. I get why it was really expensive and it didn't do super well. It did well enough. Again, in Europe, mm -hmm. um, it did, and it, it made a, a dent here. But it, but uh, Fifth Element, as Joel said, was a big box office smash, big summer event movie. And this could never have been that. 
Uh, right. That's what's great about it. If they'd have made a Joan of Arc movie that was it was more like Braveheart, you can add anything. This film really has the core, that deep, tragic core of what she was all about and how in even being sainted, how ridiculously misunderstood she was. We She's been diagnosed all these years later as what was likely going on with her. I'm not going to mention what that is. I like that they are still examining her. But right. the the outcast in our society in a time where the, that that steadfast belief in God and the fact that religion was such a part of our our political and 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 everyday lives and the fact that she's the most religious person in the film and that when, when that has served its purpose she's cast out and ultimately judged by the hypocrisy of religion itself. It, it's I just find yeah. that this awesome. So I like that. I've seen a lot of them, and there's a lot of good ones. This is by far my favorite Joan of Arc movie because of the yeah, psychological and emotional complexity involved. The only the only better Joan of Arc uh, character is in the uh, show Clone High. Ah. Um, <laughs> I think we can all agree. Well, um, Clone High is pretty awesome. We've as we've also previously discussed on the show. <laughs> um yeah so uh that does it for part one of one (laughs) of the of uh, a look at the films of luke besson and uh yeah um look these movies there there's a lot that can be said about luke besson and a lot that is you you can question about luke besson and um he um has lots of things and we don't talk there's a reason why we're not talking about his later films um well they're not all garbage but they this no. boom 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 you just see it getting yeah. bigger more grandiose and more yep. basonic as it goes and the later ones they're not all crap i was going to talk about them but i ran out of time i was going to at least list them and say this is this this is that mm-hmm. there's good stuff in there but it it's it's not the same. He rose, he rose as high as he was ever going to get. He did ultimately make a bigger, more expensive movie than the messenger, but Mm -hmm. artistically he peaked here clearly and has been looking for a way to continue admirably, but with diminishing results ever since. That's just right. Breaks. Right. Um, much like Coppola after apocalypse. Now there was nowhere to go, but down. Right. And, um, and, and and then when you're down there, what do you do? You just keep trying. Good for him. Good for both of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So uh. Yeah. So you know. Re- uh, so check these check these films out. Don't you know? It, it, especially I'm I'm going to go uh, and check out uh these these the first couple films because I I was not familiar with them and um they sound bonkers and I I uh, there's 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 room in the world for some uh, some bonkers films um but that is gonna do it for us for this week uh and the next episode this is 199 99 um we uh next episode is in two weeks because that is how long it's gonna take me to prepare for episode 200 can you believe um, it can you believe it? So, uh, so in advance of 200, thank you everybody who has been uh, listening and supportive of the show. And um, 
we you can reach out to us at all the different places on social media you you know where we are uh you know what uh make sure that you uh review us on apple podcast give us uh give us a little bit of like hey you know these guys have been around for 199 episodes um they they themselves are somewhat basonic because i really like that you just coined that phrase um uh, all right that is going to do it for us for this week thank you everybody take care of yourselves and come back and join us for 200. Thank you for listening to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now... Here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out.